0: The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. All right, Luke chapter 2. If you'll take your Bible, please, and turn there. Luke chapter 2. Every year it is... A challenge to bring Christmas messages. I think you would understand that if you had to do it every year and more than one Christmas message. Sometimes I preach I I wonder if I preach on the same subjects too much so that uh, when people come in and I begin to preach they uh, we've heard that before and so they tune out about five minutes in and they don't tune back in until it's time to pack up and go home. And there are times when I think that way about Christmas and Easter messages because you think, well, what's another way to resent the Christmas story? Uh, how are you going to tell this story again? Now, that's one of the greatest stories that's ever been told, and uh, it's worth repeating. There's no doubt about that. But one of the things that I do like to do is to uh, look for something a little bit different, uh, something that will fit with Christmas, even though it might be just a little bit different subject. And this morning, it was a real pleasure to speak about the millennial kingdom of our Lord. And surely we would have to say that thinking about Christ being born to be a king uh, would lead us into thoughts about the kingdom in which he is the king. And so uh, those kinds of thoughts prompt us uh, on Christmas to think about that. And as I said this morning, uh, the message, I I sort of backed into the subject almost by accident, not quite by accident, but almost, and... That's because we, were, we have been studying the delusion of the devil and we've come to the part where God is going to rid the world of him. And so uh, that just opened up the opportunity for us to talk about the kingdom and what this world will be like when Satan isn't here. And that's what the millennial kingdom will be. It's a world without Satan and all of his helpers and all of his evil devices. Well, I'd like to return to that subject again tonight. Uh, there are many... Aspects of the millennial kingdom that we didn't have time to talk about, and many, many more that we won 't have time to talk about, as I mentioned this morning, it is the Bible's second most talked about subject, so getting one sermon or two sermon is not an exposition of the millennial kingdom. But I do want to talk about it again this evening, and this evening's message is another Christmas message, and it 's an offshoot of what we read, uh, one, something that we read in the Christmas story. So if you'll look at Luke chapter 2 and verse 22, I'd like to use this part of the story. And it's not so much about the birth of Christ, but something that happened shortly after his birth. And this was when Jesus was about six weeks old, and I'm sure that he was a very sweet child. Maybe we could get into the argument of whether he was a deceptive crier, like other babies. But nonetheless, he was a human baby, and I'm sure that he was a good baby, and his parents... Mary and Joseph were very proud of him. They were also very godly parents, and they were obedient to the Mosaic law. And so according to the law, they took Jesus to Jerusalem for dedication. Now let me read the text, and then we're going to explain a few things as we go along, as we look at this. Luke chapter 2 and verse number 21. And when eight days were accomplished for the circumcising of the child, his name was called Jesus which was so named of the angel before he was conceived in the womb. I remember that the angel Gabriel appeared to Mary and told her that she would have a son and his name would be called Jesus, which is also the same thing as we read in Matthew chapter 1 this morning, that uh, the angel told Joseph his name will be called Jesus. Then verse 25, or 22 rather, And when the days of her purification according to the law of Moses were accomplished, they brought him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. So at eight days old, Jesus was circumcised according to the right that was given to Abraham and then later codified in the Mosaic Law. In Genesis seventeen twelve, it says, "...and he that is eight days old shall be circumcised among you every man-child in your generations." Well, God spoke that to Abraham many, many years before the giving of the law... And then later that was incorporated into the Mosaic law that every male child would be circumcised at the age of eight days old. And that was a perpetual thing throughout Israel all the way until the time that Christ fulfilled that on the cross. And so that's when the rite of circumcision ended. So uh, according to the law then, at eight days old, they brought Jesus to the temple, or or rather they, they circumcised Jesus. They didn't do that at the temple, but they did circumcise him. And in verse 22, there's another part of the law that's referenced, and this is Mary's purification. And that was a law that said that a woman that had given birth had to go through a time of purification, that as long as she had any discharges from the birth, that she was considered to be ceremonially unclean. And so to make sure that all of that was over, they observed uh, 40 days uh, as a time to set aside for purification and then... The woman after that time was considered to be purified and then she could go to the temple. Well, it was after Mary's days of purification that Jesus was taken to Bethlehem to the temple and that would have been when he was about six weeks old. Now we see in verses 23 and 24 the purpose of going there. It says, As it is written in the law of the Lord, Every male that openeth the womb shall be called holy to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice according to that which is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. I'm sorry for you ladies, sorry for all you females here, but this is what the law of God required of male children because they were very special. The male children were considered to be especially blessed. Parents that had a baby boy were especially blessed, and that baby was considered to be holy to the Lord. That means that he was sanctified to the Lord. He was set apart to God, and that's according to the law in Exodus 13:2, where it says, Sanctify unto me all the firstborn, whatsoever openeth the womb among the children of Israel, both of man and of beast, it is mine. Sanctify unto me all the firstborn, God said, and that would be all the firstborn of the males. That's explained in Exodus 22, verse number 29. So since a male child was sanctified, that meant that he was an object of redemption. And so a sacrifice had to be made for him. And then also redemption money had to be paid for him. And so that's why they would go to the temple. They would go there to make the sacrifice for the baby boy that set a, cross, a to the Lord. And then also to pay the redemption money for him. And that shows us that in every way, even from the time that Jesus was just a baby that he perfectly fulfilled every part of God's law. Now, the part that I want to get to this evening begins at verse number 25, which says, And behold, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and the same man was just and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. A consolation of Israel. That means that he was waiting for the Messiah. Or we could say that he was waiting for the kingdom." And so that makes this an eschatological statement here. He's waiting for the Messiah, for the kingdom. And it says the Holy Ghost was upon him. And it was revealed to him by the Holy Ghost that he should not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. That means before he had seen the Messiah. I'm sure you understand that Christ also means Messiah, the Anointed One. So he wouldn't die until he had seen the Lord's Messiah. And so uh, they brought him into the temple, it says, and he came, or Simeon came by the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him after the custom of the law, then took he him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now lettest thou thy servant depart in peace according to thy word. For mine eyes have seen thy salvation, which thou hast prepared before the face of all people, a light to lighten the Gentiles, and the glory of thy people Israel. Now, I'd like to take our text from verse number 32 and Simeon's prophecy in which he called Jesus a light to lighten the Gentiles, and especially especially this part, the glory of thy people Israel. Now, that is a prophecy about the millennial kingdom. Unless you think that speaking of Christ's kingdom or the millennium is not a Christmas subject, Then I remind you of those wise men that we talked about this morning who came and said, Where is he that is born King of the Jews? And I remind you of what we read in Luke 2.14, which talks about peace and how that peace cannot exist until Christ comes to rule in his kingdom. And then I would also remind you of Christmas songs. Joy to the World is a song that's primarily about Christ's kingdom. Handel's Messiah and the Hallelujah Chorus that are staples of Christmas time, a very pointed references to the Millennial Kingdom. And so when we talk about the Millennial Kingdom, we are speaking of a Christmas subject because Christ was born to be a king in a literal, physical kingdom that will come to this earth. Now, I want you to notice Simeon's announcement that Jesus would be the glory of Israel. And I want to take that statement and expand just a little bit on something that I talked about this morning, I gave you some information uh, about the globalization of the kingdom. And I said that the kingdom of Christ is a Jewish kingdom. It will be a Jewish kingdom because it was promised to God's chosen people. Now, if you'll turn back to chapter 1 in Luke for just a moment. The angel Gabriel appeared to Mary. And in verses number 32 and 33, the angel said, "...he shall be great, and he shall be called the Son of the Highest." And the Lord God shall give unto him the throne of his father David, and he shall reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there shall be no end. Now I believe that when Simeon said that Jesus would be the glory of Israel, that he was talking about. This Old Testament promise that God had given about this golden age that was going to come upon the earth, that Israel would be brought into prominence again, to greater prominence than than it ever had before, even greater than the days of Solomon. And Jesus would lead Israel to an exalted position where both they and he would rule in a kingdom on this earth. Now, it's very apparent that Simeon was not referring to Jesus' present life, Uh, Jesus, when he was here, did not usher in the golden age of the kingdom. He did give small taste of it, like we talked about this morning, with the healing and those things that he did, raising people from the dead, dealing with sin. Those were all foreshadowing of the kingdom that would come. But Christ was not the glory of Israel when he was here in his life. And then in his death, he certainly wasn't the glory of Israel, because Israel so thoroughly rejected him that Within 40 years of the time that he died, God had destroyed Jerusalem and the temple. Now in verse number 35, we also see in this text of Luke chapter 2 that Simeon said to Mary, his mother, that a sword will pierce through thine own soul also. And there he was talking about Jesus' death. And so it appeared that nothing that Jesus said during his life would actually come true. It looked like everything was going to fall apart until there was a resurrection. And with the resurrection, that hope for the glory of Israel was also revived. Now, if you ask me, how much did Simeon really understand of all of this? I mean, he's giving a prophecy of God's Word. How much did you really understand? I don't actually know. But I do know this, or I think I know, that there's no way that Simeon could have reconciled Christ's death with the kingdom if it was the kingdom was going to be during that time of Jesus' life. Those things just don't work. Now, as we survey history and uh, the history of Israel since that time, it's very hard to believe that Israel will ever arise. I mean, Israel is the most hated nation on earth. It's always been that way for centuries. Other nations have tried to just destroy or to completely obliterate her. And even at this very hour, the attempts to destroy Israel are very real. You go back just a few years to 1967, and in 67, the... Uh, Nations that were surrounding Israel tried to seize her land and take it away from her and get rid of Israel. And we know how that turned out. Instead of Israel losing land, they actually gained land. They never gave any up. And what happens to that land that they seized is the source of endless controversy, it seems today, is they're fighting over that all the time. That's why you see fighting in the Gaza Strip today, because that wants to be taken over by the people who wanted to take it then. But today, Israel tenaciously defends herself against aggression and what you don't see is Israel trying to push out to gain land someplace else, some land that's not hers but what you do see is the encroachment upon the land that Israel has now as if most of the world thinks the only thing that really needs to be done is just get rid of this little nation called Israel, get them off of the land and that was through, true throughout all of Old Testament history. Once the kingdom had been established in Israel, there was always a constant fight to get rid of her. In fact, Solomon's kingdom, Solomon was the only one who enjoyed an extended period of peace for uh, uh, during his reign. All the rest of them are immersed in just t- terrible wars that were going on. And as I talked about this morning, and we looked at in Psalm chapter 72, that Christ's kingdom is modeled after Solomon's kingdom, at least in this respect, the peace and the prosperity of it. Well, after Solomon passed from the scene, his son Rehoboam uh, came to the throne, and he was severely lacking in the wisdom of Solomon. And so he wasn't able to hold the kingdom together, and the kingdom was divided. Eventually, both of the divisions fell. One's Judah, one's Israel, northern and southern kingdoms. Eventually, both of them fell. Jerusalem was destroyed, and the temple also was destroyed. And that was a severe judgment of God against Israel. But nonetheless, God kept making the promise that Israel would come back, that Israel would re- become a nation again, that better days are coming. And he fully intended that he would restore the kingdom to the glory days under a successor who would sit on the throne of his father David. And so in Matthew chapter 1, we have the lineage of Jesus Christ. And there it very clearly uh, shows us that he is a successor to David, that he came from David, and uh, it's called uh, from that point the Matthew, uh, Matthew. It's called the Gospel of the Kingdom because it's the last. It's the story of the last king that will sit on David's throne. Now, when Jesus was born, Simeon said, "He is going to be the glory of Israel. He is the long-awaited Messiah that's going to restore the greatness of the kingdom." And I thought that it was interesting that. Simeon did not say, he will be the glory of the world. Now we can infer that from verse number 31 when he said all people. We can also see it when he said that he would be a light to the Gentiles. But who can miss this very special emphasis that it puts on Israel? He will be the glory of Israel. Now many people would think, well, what it should say, he will be the glory of the world because they don't believe that God has any longer any plans for Israel. That God's done with the nation of Israel. There is nothing for Israel any longer. Covenant theologians teach that. They, they say that the church replaced Israel, and so there isn't anything left for Israel as a nation. Well, if that's true, then why do we have passages like Luke 2.32? That shouldn't even have been written. Why would you separate out Gentiles from Jews in this passage if Simeon was not referring to the time in which Jesus lived? Now, as we've just noted, he would be the glory of Israel not during his life. During his life, Israel was still stuck under the... Uh, under another kingdom, under another rule, another nation ruled them. After Jesus' life, the same was true. But David's throne was promised to be an everlasting throne. And we have so many passages on that that it's impossible to miss it. None of the Old Testament prophets give any indication that this is anything less than a physical kingdom that will come to the earth. The prophets do not spiritualize the kingdom. It is to be a real kingdom on the earth. God didn't reveal to them a mysterious kingdom. And because of that, I think it's very important that the United States stay on the right side of Israel. Have you ever read what God did to those who oppose Israel? The nations that have opposed Israel? You know, even when Israel was in sin, God didn't want people messing with his nation. Sometimes he used other nations to chastise his people. But have you also read what he did to those nations when God was through using them? None of them exist today. But what is the one nation that survived all attempts at destruction? There is only one. That's Israel. There is only one nation that's maintained a consistent bloodline an identifiable people for 3,500 years, and that is the nation of Israel. So it's a very serious thing to get on the wrong side of Israel, because if you do that, you're going to end up uh, on the garbage heap of castaway nations. So if we want America to to survive for any length of time, then uh, we better not take up the Muslim cause or the Palestinian cause or anything that favors Islam to the exclusion of Israel. Because when God gets ready to build his kingdom again, we do not want to be standing in the way. But I've got some bad news for you. What we call the Judeo-Christian ethic has given way to another worldview. Our nation has in the past had affinity towards Israel, but now, now that's fading away because Christianity is fading away in America. There is no protection for Christians in America any longer. And so you can be sure of this, that It won't take much time before there is no protection of Israel by America either. That's going to be given up. And so when the Antichrist comes, if America is still standing at that time, uh, according to the word of God, this nation will join with Satan against God and against Israel. And when that happens, the stone that's cut out of the mountain is going to roll down the hill... And with the power of God, it's going to crush all nations that stand against God and against his people. Now, this kingdom is going to be a Jewish kingdom because its king is Jewish. And he'll sit on David's throne. Now, let me show you something else. I'd like you to turn to Romans chapter 11. And in this chapter, Paul talks about Israel's salvation. The kingdom is a Jewish kingdom. It will be true Jewry. Uh, true Israel will be rebuilt. So this is a a kingdom in which true Israel will recognize that Jesus Christ is the Messiah. And by the way, you might also want to read Isaiah chapter 53 in that light. Uh, Isaiah 53 is a lament from Israel about the shameful way that they treated Jesus. And so Israel is going to recognize what they did, and they will mourn for that terrible mistake that they made. Many people miss that as the meaning of the 53rd chapter of Isaiah, but that's what it's about. And so you could read Isaiah 53 in conjunction with Romans chapter 11, and then you would see the truth about Israel and about Jesus, Israel coming back to Jesus. Now the kingdom then is not going to be a kingdom of secular Jews. It's not going to be a kingdom of Orthodox Jews, not of Jews who believe that salvation is still in all the fabricated laws that they have. But when Christ came, when, when he did come, true Israel, true Jewry flowed into uh, the, the uh, fulfillment of those Old Testament ceremonies that were done by Christ and because he's the one that was represented in all those ceremonies. And so when Christ comes again, the, the nation that's going to be reestablished is a nation that believes that Jesus Christ is the true Messiah, that he is the fulfillment of all the Old Testament prophecies and all of those ceremonies. Now, remember that the salvation of Israel has always been a paramount thing in Scripture. When Jesus came, he said, I am sent to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. When he commissioned the twelve apostles, he told them, Stay out of Gentile cities. Don't go to the Gentiles. Go to the Jews. Now, that, that was a very difficult command. It is a difficult command to, to reconcile for those who don't believe in the specificity of God's choice for certain ones of salvation. You're going to have a hard time with that command. When Paul went on his missionary journey, though he was a missionary to the Gentiles, he always first went into the synagogues to preach to Jews. Now hold on to Romans chapter 11 for a minute. I'll get to that in just a minute. Let me first read from Acts 13, and this is Paul speaking to Jewish leaders. Then Paul and Barnabas waxed bold and said... It was necessary that the Word of God should first have been spoken to you, but seeing ye put it from you and judge yourselves unworthy of everlasting life, lo, we turn to the Gentiles, for so hath the Lord commanded us, saying, I have set thee to be a light to the Gentiles, that thou shouldest be for the salvation, be for salvation under the ends of the earth now i won 't go on to read verse number forty eight because then i 'd get consumed speaking about this seemingly a uh, very dreadful fact that God has chosen some to salvation and not others. But in any case, the verses that we've read show us that the Jews were to hear the gospel first. And then Paul turned his attention to Gentiles. And so we come to verse number, or Romans chapter 11, which follows Paul's tremendous arguments that he makes in chapters 9 and 10. And still, Paul had not forgotten the Jews. He knew that God had an eternal plan for his people that the nation would not stay in rejection forever, but that Israel would be saved. Now, in the first part of this chapter, God is, it tells us that God has always had a believing remnant. And sometimes that remnant was so small that it was practically unnoticeable. And when Jesus came on the scene, there were very, very few believing Jews. It would be hard to find a Jew that actually believed the truth about what God was doing with Israel, and what God's plan was. Zacharias, John the Baptist's father, was one of the believing Jews. Mary and Joseph were two more. Simeon was one. Anna, that's also mentioned in Luke chapter 2, she was one. But there were very, very few that really believed in God and, and believed the, uh, what they should have believed about the Lord God. But we, all, we see here, uh, and before I read Romans chapter 11, uh, we see something in chapter 9. And I promise I'm going to get to chapter 11, but let me me do this first. Let's go to chapter 9 and look at this for just a second, just to see that Paul never abandoned hope for Israel. Romans chapter 9 and verse number 1. He said, I say the truth in Christ, I lie not, my conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Ghost, that I have great heaviness and continual sorrow in my heart, for I could wish that myself were the curse from Christ." For my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh, who are Israelites, to whom pertaineth the adoption and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the service of God and the promises, whose are the fathers and of whom concerning the flesh Christ came, who is over all, God bless forever. Amen. So Paul had this great hope for Israel. He sorrowed over Israel. He had sorrow in his heart that they would be saved. Romans chapter 10, verse number 1, expresses the same thought He said, Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. And we come to Romans chapter 11, and the discussions of Romans 9 and 10 find their resolution here. Romans 11, verse number 1. I say then, hath God cast away his people? God forbid, for I also am an Israelite of the seed of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin, God hath not cast away his people, which he foreknew. Watch ye not what the Scripture saith of Elias, how he maketh intercession to God against Israel, saying, Lord, they have killed thy prophets, and dig down thine altars, and I am left alone, and they seek my life. But what saith the answer of God unto him? I have reserved to myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to the image of Baal. Even so then, at this present time also, there is a remnant according to the election of grace. And if by grace, then it is no more of works. Otherwise, grace is no more grace. But if it be of works, then it is no more grace. Otherwise, work is no more work. What then? Israel hath not obtained that which he seeketh for, but the election hath obtained it, and the rest were blinded. According as it is written, God hath given them the spirit of slumber, eyes that they should not see, and ears that that they should not hear unto this day. Pay close attention to that. According as it is written, God hath given them the spirit of slumber, eyes that they should not see, and ears that they should not hear unto this day. I wish I had more time to to deal with that and deal with verses 6 through 8, because it seems that we can never escape this great doctrine of God's election. It just keeps popping up over and over again in Scripture, because God does not want us to forget who's in charge. God does not elect people because He foresaw that they would believe in Him. They believe because He chose them to believe. And they are special objects of His grace. And isn't that exactly what He's saying here about Israel? They are special objects of God's grace. God knows that nobody's going to choose Him, and so that's what grace is about. He chooses us. You don't need special grace if you can overcome depravity by yourself and choose God by yourself. There isn't any glory to God in that system. And this is why John said, "He, we love him because he first loved us. But that's a subject for another time. I suppose I should have read Acts 13, 48 anyway, because that's just a natural progression that flows out of the preaching of the gospel. And folks, believe me, I can make a Christmas message out of the doctrine of election too. So Christ came to this earth. He came to save those that he chose before the foundation of the world, and save them he will, because he said that's what he would do. He said he came to seek and to save the lost, and those that he came to seek and save, he will definitely save. I don't think he's going to lose any of them. He won't fail anybody that he failed to save anybody that he intended to save. So maybe that's next year's Christmas message. But let's get back to this year's. Uh, God has preserved a remnant of of believers in Israel in every age. And Paul drew an example here from the life of Elijah. And uh, in Elijah's time, he thought that he was the only one that was left. He's the only one left in all of Israel that serves God. Now, Elijah lived in a terrible time for Israel. They were far away from God. He lived in the reign of Ahab and Joyce Meyer. Oh, no, man, I got that wrong, didn't I? That's That's uh, Ahab and Jezebel. Somehow I keep getting Jezebel and Joyce mixed up here. But it's Ahab and Jezebel, not Ahab and Joyce. Uh, Jezebel's father was Ethbaal. And uh, Ethbaal is a name that means with Baal. Now, you can't get any closer to a heathen god than that, than to be with him. And so it's no wonder that Elijah thought, well, I'm all there is. I'm the last of uh, all the godly that are left. But God told Elijah, he said, you can stop crying now. You can stop feeling sorry for yourself. I've got 7,000 more that are just like you. But 7,000, that's not many, is it? Not, not many considering all that there were in Israel. Thousands upon thousands in Israel remained in unbelief. And that's the way it's been all along. Even back to the days of Moses, most of Israel was unbelievers. About 600,000 of them died in the wilderness and never made it to the promised land. They were unbelievers. The Bible says they died in unbelief. And so we come to the time of Jesus and the number of people that believed were minuscule. And now Paul says here in Romans chapter 11 that this unbelief in Israel will continue for a time. And then it will stop. I'll skip down to verse number 25 and see when it changes. Romans eleven twenty five, for I would not, brethren, that ye should be ignorant of this mystery, lest ye should be wise in your own conceits, that blindness in part is happened to Israel, until the fullness of the Gentiles be come in. Now, why does Israel reject the gospel? Why, why do they reject it today? Why have they since the time of Jesus Christ? Well, there is no escaping this. It's by God's design. We just read that earlier, a moment ago. It's by God's design. He has blinded them. He has allowed them to be blinded. It's by design. So they remain in their unbelief until a particular time, and that is when the fullness of the Gentiles come in. Well, when is that time? That's the time of the church. That's the time that we're living in right now, in the age of the church. God is working in Gentile nations, and then at the end of the church age, God will go back to Israel and begin to work with them again. Now that sure sounds like God is still controlling choices, doesn't it? Now for for you good students of eschatology, when is the end of the church age? That's the time of the rapture. And when Jesus comes back and takes his people out of the world and then the church is gone, that is when he begins to work with Israel again. That's when the transformation of Israel starts. And that's when God saves 144,000 out of the nation of Israel during the time of tribulation. 12,000 from each tribe will be saved then and protected as special witnesses for Christ. Now, you can read all about that in Revelation 7. I was going to go there, but we won't because uh, our time is getting close to over. But God's going to save 144,000 Jews, but that's not all that he's going to save. There'll be many more that will be saved. They are God's witnesses, and God needs witnesses because there is no church. And these are the people that are chosen to do it. Now, when you get time, you get home or something, you can read Revelation chapter 7, verses 13 to 15, and there you'll see that all these converts that are won to Christ during that time are going to be martyred. And those 144,000 are also going to be martyred. And they're the foundation of the Jewish kingdom in the millennium. They and others are going to come back to this earth and rule with Christ for the thousand years. So Paul said that the blindness of Israel is a temporary condition. He said when the fullness of the Gentiles comes in, this is what's going to happen. So we look at Romans 11:26, And so all Israel shall be saved. As it is written, there shall come out of Zion the deliverer and shall turn away ungodliness from Jacob, for this is my covenant unto them, when I shall take away their sins. God is going to turn away the ungodliness of Jacob. That means the blinders are going to come off. God's going to show them the truth of his word. That means they're going to be saved. As it is written, God will send a deliverer out of Zion. Where's that written? That's Isaiah chapter 59, verses 20 and 21. And the Redeemer shall come to Zion, and unto them that turn from transgression in Jacob, saith the Lord, as for me, this is my covenant with them, saith the Lord, my spirit that is upon thee, and my words which I have put in thy mouth, shall not depart out of thy mouth, nor out of the mouth of thy seed, nor out of the mouth of thy seed's seed, saith the Lord, from henceforth and forever. And so there is God's promise that he will restore the kingdom. And Jesus was born to be the king in that kingdom. And so what happens is the real Israel arises in belief out of the rest of the secular nation of Israel. That happens during the time of the tribulation. That's preparation for the kingdom. And in Romans 9, Paul said that not all Israel is real Israel, but this is real Israel. This is not the the secular Jews, not the Orthodox Jews. These are believers in Jesus as the Messiah, and it's only to them that this kingdom has been promised. Then Paul says in verse number 29, for the gifts and calling of God are without repentance. And why did he say that? What's that for? Well, that tells us that God is not going to forget this promise. He'll never change his mind about this. Israel will be the nation that rules the world. It'll be the nation that rules the world. Why? Because that's God's chosen nation. They're the ones that God has made this promise to. Now there, uh, you be thankful for this, I, I, I should say. Be thankful that you weren't born in the Old Testament times. Be thankful that you weren't born then. Because there was nobody that played in Israel's sandbox or God's sandbox but Israel. Did you know that? God wasn't dealing with anybody else but Israel then. And so he wasn't actively seeking to save the world at that time. Millions died and nobody ever heard a thing about what was going on in Israel. And we'll just see if we can make sense of that, if God is anything other than highly selective. The world needed Christ for that. And that's why he came. And so in the fullness of time... The Bible says that Jesus came. Now let me back up just a little bit as I close the message tonight. God intends for Israel to rule the world. You wouldn't know that by looking at Israel today. The wise men came to worship Jesus. They said, where is he that's born king of the Jews? And once again, they could have said, where is he that is born to be king of the world? But the wise men knew something. What did they know? Well, they knew that Israel is the most important nation. And they knew the king of Israel is the most important king. And so that's why they said, where is he that's born king of the Jews? But you wouldn't recognize any of this by visiting Israel today. A trip there is just an amazing sight when you think of the way things are and what the Bible says that they will become. Now, no matter what politicians say, and they want to to divvy up the land of Israel, the land belongs to Israel because God gave it to them. Now, you, can, you and I can argue about who owns this country. You know, some people say, well, the Native Americans actually own this country. Well, maybe they do, and you can make that argument if you want. Some people will say, well, no, China actually owns this country, and that might be true, too. And We can argue about that. We can argue about any country in the world if we want to, but who cares? God doesn't care. God doesn't care about any other nation in the world. He only cares about Israel. They're the only ones that have a promise. No, I mean, in this regard, this is the way that he cares about Israel like he does no other nation. Where the land goes, who owns it, he doesn't care. He cares about Israel and their land. So politicians can't decide who owns the land. U.S. and the U.S. and Russia and and Arabs, nobody can say, you have a right to this much and only this much and you can't have any more. And if we decide, you don't have a right to any of it. No, God gave them the land. As you know, there's this constant battle over Palestinian control of certain parts of Israel. Should there be a Palestinian state? Maybe. Somewhere. But not there. Not there. Let them carve out a spot in one of the Arab nations if they want. But not there, because that land belongs to Israel. in, In Bethlehem, at the time of Jesus' birth, or or the place of Jesus' birth, I should say, there's, there's a huge wall that snakes through the neighborhoods that separates uh, Bethlehem from, from Jerusalem. Approaching Jericho, you'll, you'll, you'll try to get into the city, and there'll be a long line of cars where they're inspecting everyone before they let them in, and there are guards and guard towers with their machine guns uh, beside bullet-parked buildings. You go to the Temple Mount, And the Jews are prohibited from going up there in any numbers because it's so dangerous. There's a mosque that stands at the entrance and one that stands on the Temple Mount where the uh, Temple of Solomon once stood. And the Jews can't go there and they can't go there because they'll be killed if if they do. Now, can I repeat this again? God gave Israel the land but they're trying to push Israel off their land into a little corner, and politicians keep carving it up and telling them, you can go here, and you can go there, but you can't go over there. And the Jews have to listen to that. They have to do that now because they know that the world has this misguided sympathy for people who aren't supposed to be there. This is their land. God gave them the land. Now, I don't know where you stand on the Palestinian conflict. That's a complicated issue. There are difficult issues to uh, answers to that, but I can, uh, you can be sure of this, that Egypt and Syria and Saudi Arabia and Jordan are not going to make a place for Palestinians. They're only good for the rest of those people as long as they help fight against Israel, and if they won't fight against Israel and try to destroy Israel, they don't count for anything. So what are they going to do when the fullness of the Gentiles comes in? God is going to give back the land, and not only their land, But he's going to take away all the Arab lands too. And he's going to establish the kingdom of Israel over this entire world. So I can tell you what they're going to do. They'll surrender their land. And they'll bow before the king of kings. And he will rule over them. Now let me leave you with just one last scripture. Let's turn to Acts chapter 15. Uh, This chapter is about the Jerusalem council and They'd met to discuss circumcision of Gentiles. And James, who was the half-brother of Jesus, was the senior pastor of the Jerusalem church. And he made a notable speech that encompasses some of the discussion that we've had tonight. And in Acts chapter 15, in verse number 13, And after they had held their peace, James answered, saying, Men and brethren, hearken unto me. Simeon hath declared how God at the first did visit the Gentiles, to take out of them a people for his name. And to this agree the words of the prophets, as it is written, After this I will return and build again the tabernacle of David, which is fallen down. And I will build again the ruins thereof, and I will set it up, that the residue of men might seek after the Lord, and all the Gentiles upon whom my name is called, saith the Lord, who doeth all these things. Known unto God are all his works from the beginning of the world." Now James said, "The prophets agree about this. When God has taken from the Gentiles a people for His name, and that's another statement of God's election. When God has taken out of the Gentiles a people for His name, and He's referring to the very same thing that Paul talked about in Romans chapter 11. When the fullness of the Gentiles come in, when God has finished taking out a people." for his name from the Gentiles, then Christ is going to return again and build again the tabernacle of David that has fallen down. Now let me help you with the explanation of that. The tabernacle of David means the house of David. It means the ruling, ruling house of David. You know, uh, if you're familiar with the uh, English history... You've heard of things like the house of Stuart, the house of Windsor, house of Hanover, and so forth. That's the ruling family. So when this talks about the tabernacle of David, it's speaking of the ruling monarchy, the ruling family of David. And when that happens, when the Gentiles, the time of the Gentiles come in, then God is going to restore the ruling throne of David, and Jesus Christ will sit on that throne. That's what he was born to do. He was born to restore the glory of Of Israel. Now praise God for this, that He is a light to the Gentiles. You and I are saved because He's a light to the Gentiles. This is going to be a global kingdom in which Jerusalem will be the capital city. It won't be the great city of Washington, D.C., it will not be Moscow or Mecca or Tokyo or any other Gentile city of the world. This is going to be Jerusalem in the little bitty country of Israel, right where we know today. I suspect, or I do know, that in the millennial kingdom there are going to be lots of people that are not going to like Christ to rule over them. This is why we read about the rod of iron and all of that. They don't like to have Christ rule over them, and so their hatred is going to be stirred up again, and they'll join the devil in a rebellion when he's set free from prison, and then God is going to destroy the devil and those people from this earth forever. And then guess who the land will be? Land will be who owns it then? You only get one guess. Israel's. It'll be Israel's. God said, this is my land. From Dan to Beersheba, from California to the New York Islands, from Tokyo to Moscow to Vladivostok to Calcutta to Beijing and all points in between. It all belongs to God and thus it will all belong to Israel. God's kingdom encompasses the entire world. And I tell you something, we need to get with that plan before it's too late. We need to be in on that plan. So I hope that you see that when it comes to talking about the birth of Christ, there's a lot more to talk about than a manger. And there's more to talk about than swaddling clothes and, and, and lowing cattle and bleeding sheep. Christ came to be born as a king for a kingdom. And that's what he's going to do. He is going to rule the world in an actual, literal, physical kingdom. And you and I, who are believers in Jesus Christ, we shall rule with him. And it will be a kingdom for Israel because that's what God promised. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. And Lord, we pray that you would help us to discover the truths of it. If we just read and we just listen, we pay attention to what you've said, then we can see the plan that you have unfolded before us, and you tell us exactly what you're going to do. And so, Lord, we put our hope and our trust in you to keep your word. Uh, you've said that you're never going to repent of these things. You won't change your mind about them. You're the utterly, absolutely dependent God. And so, we put our trust in you, Lord, to know that it's going to be so much better. As your people, were are going to rule on this earth. And all the troubles that we have now will be done away with. We thank you for that, Lord. We thank you for Jesus Christ, born in Bethlehem, to be a king. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Ronan Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Roanoke Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us on the World Wide Web at www.bebaptist.org.